whatever you are. Cool. So uh, welcome. This is uh, another episode of Here You Are, Wausau. I'm your host, Dino. And uh, today I'm, I'm super excited because I'm sort of venturing outside of the podcast with my friends and uh, wandering into really unknown territory for me. And uh, so I, I lovingly refer to Will as Will the Ginseng Guy because that's how I know you. And uh, and through Twitter, obviously, and, yep. And uh, probably picture wise, the men who cook thing, but which I'm massively jealous of your pictures. But uh, so, Will, can you tell us a little bit about you know what it what is your professional concern? I mean, what is is it a company? Is it an association? What's it called? We uh, run, I guess the best way to describe it is a portfolio of companies around the ginseng and ginseng farming uh, industry, um, if you can call it an industry here in central Wisconsin. It's an industry that is probably native to central Wisconsin uh, and can only be found here. So that's why we call it an industry, because outside of this area, <clears throat> it doesn't really exist within the United States. Uh, the other major growing regions for American ginseng are in Ontario, kind of near the London and Brantford and Hamilton and Simcoe area uh, in, in southern Ontario and then in uh, northern China. Uh, so in the U.S., pretty much the only place you're going to, going to find a major concentration of ginseng farmers is here in Marathon County and then four or five of the surrounding counties around Marathon County. And there's probably somewhere around 150, 175 families or farmers that are growing this crop in the area. So that's kind of the lay of the land uh, for ginseng. And we do everything from farming it to processing it trimming it, packaging it, retailing it, um, you know, kind of from head to tail. So it, I feel I feel ashamed asking this, but as a lifelong Marathon County resident, so why Marathon County? Uh, Marathon County uh, primarily for a couple of reasons. Um, the industry really started here. Um, the... Fromm Brothers, who you know you may be familiar with, are often credited with starting the industry here in central Wisconsin. Um, basically, in the early 1900s, you had a lot of immigrant farmers coming to this area. They started working in uh, the fur industry, and fur and ginseng have always been traded side by side. Uh, and the Fromms wanted to get into fur. And one of the ways they got into fur was by growing ginseng or transplanting ginseng from the wild into cultivated populations and then selling that product to raise money to buy, you know, mink and fox that they could breed and raise uh, fur for pelts. And uh, this industry and those two industries, ginseng and fur, have been traded together since the early 1700s, you know, as North America was developed by the European and the French, and as they traded furs, ginseng, and other kind of, you know, forest materials um, to Europe and to China. Um, wild ginseng was discovered in Canada in the early 1700s by French Jesuit priests. And for those of you that know kind of your Wisconsin and Minnesota geography and history, a lot of Wisconsin and Minnesota was discovered, quote unquote, by 
the Western white settlers, <laughs> uh, and they were French or French Jesuit, and um, that's you know they came into Wisconsin through the Great Lakes and through the rivers and tributary system, and found the Mississippi, etc. And so those are kind of like the historical points of how Wisconsin was developed. And then in the 1800s, as the as immigrant families were moving here and settling here uh, and being granted land here, um, they started growing crops that were unique to this area. And ginseng was one of them. Uh, and so that kind of started the industry here in the early 1900s, right around the turn of the century, um, possibly as early as, you know, 1905, 1906. Uh, 1910. There's a lot of historical records from that time that show that people were moving into ginseng farming uh, throughout the state of Wisconsin. And the industry has stayed here um, through World War One, through World War II. Uh, and we maintain it as a traditional crop to this day. And that's one of the cool things about central Wisconsin. It's always been here. And a lot of people just don't know about it. Uh, at the peak of this industry in the 90s, when I was in high school, there were probably about 1,000, 1,200, uh, maybe even as many as 1,500 farmers growing it in Wisconsin. And then they started growing it in other parts of the world, uh, Canada. Uh, they started in British Columbia and then eventually moved to Ontario and then northern China. And once those growing regions started um, growing large amounts, uh, the Wisconsin industry began, began to shrink. And so now you're down to about 150 farmers growing about a million pounds. At its peak 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, we were growing about two and a half million pounds as an industry. So it's kind of uh, the journey of family farming combined with global competition for a product. But this is the one area that Chinese consumers know ginseng comes from. They know that Wisconsin is known for American ginseng, and so when they have the opportunity or the money to purchase ginseng from Wisconsin, they will do so. Um, it's kind of how some people feel about French wine. Um, it's probably how some people feel about, you know, handmade clothing or Italian clothing or, uh, you know, a handmade uh, purse or uh, shoulder bag. These are things that are worth the price that you pay for them because they have craftsmanship, they have terroir, um, and you just know these areas for these products, and this is one of them. So are there are there uh, scientific or, or agricultural reasons that uh, Marathon count? Like, I, I'm thinking of how, you know, Napa has very specific characteristics for wine. So does... Marathon County have something similar? Yes, and a lot of that has to do with the, uh, again, the history. But this is, you're talking about geological yeah. history now going back, you know, millions of years. So when the glaciers receded from this area, they deposited um, glacial till, right? Soils and subsoils that got pushed down from the north. And, you know, if you follow the glacier trail, the glacial trail, um and the Ice Age Trail through Wisconsin, the, some of it skirts, you know, Marathon County. And that, those soil deposits imp, impart a taste and a flavor to the ginseng here, because this is a root crop. You know, the French talk about terroir with wine, Napa talks about terroir with wine. This is a root crop, and you're not talking about fruit, you're talking about something that grows in the ground. And so it absorbs the soil and other things that are coming, uh, the flavors that come out of the soil, here in Marathon County. And 
you can't replicate that flavor in the Ontario growing region or in the northern China growing regions. No different than you can't replicate French terroir and soil and technique even in the drying process for ginseng. You can't replicate some of that winemaking technique in that soil. Um, even if you move the Pinot Noir grape or the Cabernet grape somewhere else, it doesn't taste the same. Uh, and so it's a combination of soil, uh, a little bit of craftsmanship and technique in the processing, uh, but a lot of it does come from the climate and the soil and the geography of central Wisconsin. My dad likes to say it's the granite, but um, it's more than that. It's more than just the granite. It's the soil, the subsoil, the uh, environment that we have here, the growing techniques that we have here, and then the processing techniques. Cool. So you, you mentioned your dad. And uh, so it leads to the obvious question for me is, how did this become a thing that you do? Oh, this is a long story. Well, it's, uh, it's the internet, man. We got yeah. Oh, you know, I don't know how much time you have, but as much uh, you as know, you want. The internet. Yeah. Uh, uh, my dad immigrated to the United States in uh, 1969. He came here to uh, he came to the United States to get his master's master's degree in social work. And after um, completing his degree, in part to help complete his degree, the state of Wisconsin uh, paid him, you know, a scholarship basically. And then he came to work for the state of Wisconsin afterwards. That was part of that kind of stipend or scholarship that he received as a graduate student. So he came to Fond du Lac, Wisconsin to work as a social worker after graduating. And when he was working as a social worker, one of his colleagues had clipped out an article from um, – I think it's Mother Jones magazine um, in the 70s and talk about ginseng, you know, because that was kind of alternative healing, alternative medicine. And um, he took that um, article and wrote to the State Department of Agriculture and asked them, you know, hey, can you send me a list of ginseng farmers? And he wanted to contact them. And so he drove to Marathon County one day, you know, after probably a long day of work or whatever, knocked on a few farmers' doors. And so he's pretty persistent and asked them about ginseng. And one of the guys said, well, if you want to buy some and you have money on you, I'll sell you some. And so my dad bought a couple pounds of ginseng from this farmer and sent it home to his mom or my grandmother. And my dad comes from a family of 14. They come from a very poor part of Taiwan. Um, grew up without running water, without electricity, no shoes. Uh, he was the first person in his family to graduate high school, the first person to graduate college, the first person to come to the United States. And uh, he sent that product home to his mom and said, hey, you know, I found this product. I heard it's good for your health. And he had known about ginseng, but he, they were too poor to be able to afford it. And he sent it home to his mom and uh, my, my grandfather, his dad, cooked uh, some, you know, basic Chinese uh, medicine and herb uh, teas uh, from the product and had uh, my grandmother consume it. And, he, you know, his grandfather, my grandfather, his dad wrote back and said, son, this product works, send more. And my dad didn't believe it, you know, but he was being a dutiful son and would send Jingxing home and um, didn't really start believing it until he actually saw it. So he didn't go home probably to uh, Taiwan probably for four, five, six years after he left. And the first time he saw his mom, he just noticed that her skin color had, had improved, her appetite, 
her ability and mobility had improved and he started believing in the product. And so in the mid 70s, around 1972, 73, 74, he started dabbling in it, buying small quantities from farmers, uh, selling it to friends and family members here in the United States, and then um, moved to Wausau in 1976 to start brokering, uh, basically helping farmers sell their product. Uh, to to buyers and all the buyers came from primarily Hong Kong at that time and he spoke Chinese and you know knew the language and knew a little bit about the about the product and so you know started on on the brokering side and then started growing the product in 78 as he kept building the retail side of his business and the retail side of his business was really built on a new wave of immigrants that started coming here after uh, the Immigration Act was passed in 1965 that allowed more Asians, or really allowed Asians, period, to come to the United States. Uh, so the Chinese started moving to the United States and Taiwanese Hong Kong in right around 1965 through about the early 1990s. And this wave of immigrants were mostly educated people or people coming here for education, um, undergraduate and graduate degrees from Taiwan, Hong Kong, affluent, typically affluent. And when they stayed here in the U.S. and found jobs afterwards, they needed to buy products. And one of those products that they couldn't find uh, domestically, at least very easily, was, gin was ginseng. And so my dad started taking out advertisements in Chinese language newspapers, um, connecting with that network of immigrants that were moving here and selling them ginseng uh, through the mail. I mean, people would send cash and checks and money orders. And you got to think about this, you know, today we take this all for granted. But in the 70s and 80s, you might mail someone a money order and check. You don't get any confirmation um, until you get a package back, you know, two weeks later. And we take a lot of this for granted that there's a lot of trust involved when you're putting money in the mail, crossing your fingers and hoping that you get something back. I think the closest thing that my generation can remember is, you know, clipping out box tops or you know, certificates that came in packaged food so that you could get, you know, a toy or something. But we're not talking, you know, $5 or $3. We're talking, you know, in some cases, hundreds of dollars that were being sent to us here in Wausau, hoping that you're going to get a product back um, that you paid for. And so we kind of built our reputation, our brand on that trust. That trust that you're going to send us money and we're going to send you a high quality ginseng product back in the mail. Um, and then we moved into a catalog business. Um, we like to think we're probably the equivalent of the Sears catalog to that generation of Chinese immigrants. Um, they couldn't find a lot of these products that we carried um, anywhere in the U.S. unless you lived in a major Chinatown market. If you didn't live in L.A., San Francisco or New York at that time in the 70s and 80s, or Chicago, you probably couldn't find that product. I mean, my parents, we grew up here. You don't have tofu. You don't have the fish that you're used to eating. You don't have Chinese vegetables like bok choy and Napa, um, Napa cabbage. You had to go to major cities to get this pro these products. And so my dad and my mom really built this company and that <laughs> reputation on, you know, calling in or mailing in product. And this is before credit cards, really. And we will send you product in the mail, um, including ginseng. And now we carry a wide array of products. We carry small electronics like rice cookers, hot water heaters, soybean milk makers. Uh, we carry a lot of Asian branded cosmetics. And these are all things that either we grew up with or we know that 
Chinese and Asian consumers are looking for. And if you live in any small or medium-sized town in the United States, you can't find these products on the store shelf. So your alternatives are order them from Amazon or some online website or buy them from a company and a brand you trust, and that's us. And so we were kind of like the Sears Amazon of Chinese language consumers. And the, the benefit and the differentiation for us is our catalogs, our customer service, our website, they're all in Mandarin. So they're all in Chinese, and if you speak or read that language, Everything's customer service and catered towards your needs, um, and that's why we're still here. You know, forty-five years later, still doing this business out of Wausau. Wow! Holy crap, man! I had no idea. This is awesome. So, well, yeah, the ginseng industry has been secretive. I mean, it's been here for over a hundred years, but a lot of folks don't talk about it because one, there's not a lot of us left growing it, and two, it's worth a lot of money. And so some people are kind of more humble or afraid to talk about it uh, or just want to kind of keep it, you know, between those that know about it. Yeah, I, it, it's funny, sort of. Um, I was thinking about the podcast before we did it and uh, and I I was trying to, you know, because it's as as a topic, ginseng is, is relatively foreign to me, um, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I did a little bit of Googling and you and I are both sons of immigrants mm -hmm. and, uh, and we've both essentially taken over for our fathers. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I, as you tell the tale, you know, obviously the, the ginseng part of it is fascinating, but the other part, the, the more personal story, you know, the connection to your dad and how that happened for you is I'm, I'm, totally fascinated because I know how mine worked and how as an Italian American, you know, I, there's two things I'm super excited about. One, I'm not a blacksmith like my father was when he <laughs> came to America. And, uh, and two, yeah, there is even for Italian Americans as, as much as we are, you know, in movies and in a, a common thing, there, there are parts of our culture that, we just don't talk about, yep. you know, and so, and it's, it's not because we're, no, it is, it is because we are, we are flat out protecting that, you know, because the, we don't want to see this stuff show up in a Martin Scorsese movie, you know, and yeah. so that's fascinating to me. So, so I, I want to key a little bit more on that. So you went to high school here? Yeah, I grew, I, I grew up here. I was born in Fond du Lac, and my dad moved around that same time after I was born to Wausau because the business was starting to take off, and he knew that um, eventually he'd have to be located here around the place where it grows primarily. And Marathon was more the hub, but Wausau was the big city, right. obviously, um, uh, in the area. And so he moved me as a baby, basically, from Fond du Lac uh, to Wausau. And, um, you know, moved up onto 15th Street on East Hill there and uh, started the business. Uh, my mom worked at the old Wausau Hospital. She was a registered nurse. She got her, uh, another degree from uh, Marion College in Fond du Lac and was a nurse during the day or nights um, so that my dad could, you know, run this business. And... 
you know, he started, like I said, brokering and then trading and buying and selling and then built a retail brand around it. And I grew up here, went to high school here, uh, went to college at UW-Madison. But, you know, at every kind of critical point in my life after high school, my dad kind of told me not to move back. Um, in the in 94, you know, he wanted me to go to college. So, you know, that was my, the year I graduated from Wasa East. I went to UW-Madison, graduated there in 2000 um, with a degree in finance and Chinese language and literature and East Asian studies. And then um, in 2000, the market was really bad. Um, it was a tough time to be a farmer. Um, well, Canada had really ramped up production. They were, you know, producing two, three, four times as much as central Wisconsin, and the price of the product fell. And he said, "Why would you want to be a? Uh, why would you want to be a poor farmer?" He said, "You know, use your college degree and you know go do." business or to learn something else right and so I went to work for General Mills and General Mills is a great company and I you know I still have a lot of friends who work there and who have worked there and after three or four years there they sent me off um, to Harvard Business School for my MBA as part of their finance leadership develop, development program and so they send you know one or two individuals a year off to that program through their kind of analyst class and after you graduate you agree to work for them for typically four or five years after graduation to pay back um, the tuition and fees that they sponsor uh, when you're attending there and that was just an amazing experience to be able to you know work for a great company, then go off and get a top tier MBA from one of the best, you know, MBA programs in the nation, if not in the world, and then apply that back at the company uh, at General Mills for the next four or five years after. So I stayed uh, about, uh, I stayed five years after um, I finished my MBA and worked, you know, as a manager in their, in their finance uh, uh, program. And then my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer in uh, 2010 and didn't have a great succession plan in place. Uh, my uncle was uh, probably about 10 or 12 years younger than my dad and um, was thinking or was supposed to take over the business but had his own health problems. And so shortly after I returned, you know, I returned on a kind of on a FMLA, you know, family medical leave right. and sabbatical and wasn't planning on staying for maybe more than a year, you know, six months to a year, because that's just not an extended type of absence. And General Mills has a pretty good sabbatical program, unpaid. And so I was saying, hey, can I combine these things and take some leave and help out at the business um, so my dad can do surgery and kind of recover? And it took him like four months, five months to recover from um, the surgery. And during that time, you know, I just never went back is the way to do it. It was a way to say it. You know, they kept General Mills kept calling me and asking, are you when are you thinking about coming back? And I'm like, oh, can I extend it? And I was, you know, they weren't paying me. And so for them, it was just really an opportunity to be able to, you know, see what my interests were. And, you know, not saying that Wasa drew me back, but once I kind of moved back here and saw what was going on, the industry was starting to turn. And I think people started returning to wanting to know where the product came from, going back to authentic product from Wisconsin. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with some of the local food movements, organic food, 
And you have a you have an entire generation now of Chinese customers, mainland Chinese customers, who started coming here, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and they don't always trust the food system in China. They trust the U.S. food system and the FDA, and they believe in organic food. They believe in the benefits of having a healthy um, food supply chain. And a lot of interest from our mainland consumers comes from the fact that this product is grown in the U.S., it's grown to U.S. standards, and it's grown by a company that's been here doing it for 45 years. Uh, and they feel assured that they're going to get high-quality product uh, because it's grown here. And it's not coming from Canada. It's not coming from China. It's not a counterfeiter imitation product. It's the real deal out of Wisconsin. So we welcome people here. I had a tour group here on Sunday from Hangzhou, uh, mainland China, or PRC, and they were here touring our farms because they've heard about us and they wanted to see firsthand where their ginseng comes from. You know, I've got Korean media here today. They came all the way from South Korea um, to come and see what we're growing in terms of American ginseng and the Asian ginseng species um, because this is the heartland and kind of where it all started for American ginseng. Wow. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny because my father was, it was the same. Yeah. Like I proudly keep, cause he's gone now. And so I proudly keep a letter that he wrote to me my freshman year of college because I was struggling with homesickness. And mm -hmm. so he wrote me a letter and I, you know, it's, it's in my house all the time and it sort of, something I come back and touch often, but yeah, it's the, you know, it was the, you know, go out in the world speech. Yeah. And then eventually it was for me, it was, yeah, I, I, I want to be with my family and yep. for an Italian American, that's, you know, that's home. And so I, I had decided, you know, cause I had gone away and I'd, I'd lived in New York city and I'd lived mm -hmm. in Los Angeles and I traveled the world doing the, the work that I was, was doing at the time. And, uh, and I had an opportunity to do that work here. And I, I built a radio station for NTC Yep. and, uh, and I was like, all right, I'm done now. I think, I think this is it. I think I'm here now. And, yep. uh, and so it was. It was that, and so now it's it's taking care of the the business that my my father and my parents built. Yeah, and I mean I'm the same way. You know, I when I moved back, I was going through some of my dad's old stuff, and you know he's still alive, but he's yeah. retired. And uh, I was going through some of his old documents because I'm sitting in his office right now talking to you in his old office. And I was going through some of his papers, and I actually found in my house because I bought. Um, you know, the one of the houses that I grew up in um, on the west side of Wausau that they had moved out of as they downsized. And um, I found an old box of papers of his and it contained his resignation letter to the state. And I looked at the date on it and it was literally like right around the time I was born. And, you know, nowadays I cannot imagine quitting a job for, you know, a secure employment working for the right. state of Wisconsin. You have a newborn baby and you're going to quit the state service so that you can go start some entre entrepreneurial business in Wisconsin. Yeah, I'm not I'm not that brave. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, there's different kind, but I think that's the difference with immigrants. Yeah. You know, immigrants sometimes are willing to take some risks because 
they only see the positive in yeah. things. You know, and, and to them, what's the downside? You can't be any poorer than you were when you grew up. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. Right? Exactly. So, yeah. Um, so what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis? It's funny that you asked that because the, the guys who were in here interviewing me this morning, they say, you pretty much do everything. And I'm like, yeah, it's general management. And, you know, that's kind of what I learned in business school. But it's general management where you literally do everything, you know. You have to, in my case, you know, being bilingual helps, obviously, speaking Mandarin. My Mandarin was not as good now as it was when I, you know, was not as good when I moved here as it is now. But, um, you know, I speak both languages um, fairly fluently. Um, so I have staff that, you know, some speak Mandarin, some speak English, some speak Hmong or Laotian. Um, we even have, you know, guys from Mexico here working for us on our farm uh, on the H-2A labor program. So sometimes I speak a little Spanish. So you do everything from farming and uh, looking at the farms, reviewing the farms. You know, I'm lucky I have a farm manager. Uh, his name's Nick Sanquist. He and I grew up together on the family farm. Uh, Nick's dad, Ron, was my dad's first employee. Um, and so Ron Sanquist ran our farms from pretty much right around 1980 until he retired uh, probably five or seven years ago. Or actually, even maybe even more than that, maybe 10 years ago now. And so his son, Nick, also college educated, got lured back by his dad uh, to come work the farm. And so now he runs our farm. You know, we've got hundreds of acres under cultivation growing ginseng. And so it's kind of cool, you know, being able to work with someone you grew up with and knew uh, and now get to work alongside with. uh, And he takes good care of our farm employees, our farm, our machinery, you know, all that stuff that makes the actual farm tick. Um, And I get to concentrate a little bit more of my time um, on the marketing and the sales side and coordinating, you know, all these products that we're selling. I mean, we're selling dried seafood from Japan and imported, you know, fill in the blank product uh, from wherever, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, to consumers here in the U.S. And so a lot of it is kind of import-export on my side of the business, uh, general management, financial management, and then day-to-day operations. You know, I have a, uh, a couple of senior senior leaders that take care of some of the day-to-day operations, you know, decisions around what we're making when. But, you know, it's not still a small business, you know. We don't have a ton of employees. Uh, we do have sales offices and branches in uh, five other or six other uh, cities in North America. So these are all like the major Chinese metropolitan hubs. So New York, Houston, L.A., San Francisco, Vancouver, and Toronto. And then Chicago we service out of, out of Wausau. So, you know, those are kind of where a lot of the Chinese people in North America live. And so we have sales staff there that are selling our products into, you know, retail bricks and mortar in the Chinatown shops and distributing our product uh, into those uh, major Chinatown markets. And so it's a big business now. Um, And so it kind of suits what I was trained and educated in. Um, But you kind of do it all. There's days I'm in the warehouse helping my folks move products. There's days I'm out on the farm, you know, 
working with my you know farm manager Nick. Um, I'm doing land acquisition and land sales all the time because ginseng is one of those unique crops where you never plant on the same land twice. Uh, and so we're constantly renting land, swapping land, selling land, acquiring land. And so every day in the office is an adventure. It keeps it exciting um, in some ways because uh, <laughs> you're never bored, but it also means a lot of times a lot of long hours. Wow, okay. So, yeah, I didn't know that part about never planting in the same space twice. So, yeah, we never plant the same land twice. So, the, the, do you, so your father did, uh, it sounds like quite a bit of brokering. Do you still do that? Yeah, we do some brokering. I bring in buyers. Some of them are actually, ironically enough, this industry is very much kind of like what you were talking about. It's father to son. I've got two or three uh, decent-sized buyers from Taiwan and Hong Kong uh, who are the sons of uh, my dad's you know, business contacts. And so they come here once a year, sometimes twice a year in the fall or early winter and they buy the product that they want and they need and we broker it. We charge them a commission. Uh, we are a buyer's agent. Uh, there's a lot of brokers here who are seller's agents. Uh, so you gotta view this kind of like real estate a little bit. Sometimes we do deals where it's broker to broker. Other times when I'm a buyer's agent, I will go out to family farms looking for specific products of a specific greater quality based on what the buyer wants. And I go out and acquire it, and my job is to acquire it for the cheapest price possible for the buyer, and then I charge the buyer a commission. So I act as a buyer's agent a lot, uh, where I have folks who want ginseng, and some of them are domestic even, and they want ginseng of a certain grade, a certain size, a certain poundage or lot size, and I go out and find it for them, get them to agree on price, both buyer and seller, and then just make a commission on it. And that brokerage business still exists to this day, um, and that's kind of uh, that's kind of the the trading side of things. And then the other side of it is we retail and resale and retail a lot of ginseng as well. So a lot of what we grow and some of what we buy from other local farmers, we will process and put into our own product. Yeah. And that's the vast majority of the ginseng that we do is our own, but also processed and packaged into our own product that's branded with our label. A much smaller portion of our business is brokering and doing, tra tr you know, trading or selling of product for others. Okay. All right. Cool. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm sort of overwhelmed now, and I, I want to take some time to figure out some more specific questions for you, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so as as you look ahead, because one of the things that I assume MBAs do all the time is make projections. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we've, you know, the president is, has altered those projections, I would imagine, extensively for you. Yeah, but, a little uh, bit. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, what what does the future, you know, let's say five years, you know, how yep. how does your business translate into five years? Um, you know, ginseng is a product that's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, Chinese have been using ginseng, uh, American ginseng for 300 years. They've been using the Asian species of ginseng since the Han Dynasty, if you're not even before the Han Dynasty. So you're talking like 1000 to 0, you know, BC. So, you know, this stuff's been around for a couple thousand years. Um, it doesn't go away overnight. So five years actually isn't even a long term in our industry because it takes four to five years for the crop to reach maturity. 
So really what I'm oh, doing geez. now is if you look at our planting, we're going to start planting here after the fourth. You're planting crop that you won't harvest for five years. Holy shit. So, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not like a crop you plant in spring and harvest in fall and you're done. Uh, this is a crop that you plant in 2019 and you're going to harvest at the earliest in 2023, if not 2024. Um, so it maybe even 2025. So it's just one of those things where you're not um, talking, you know, a year, two years, three years. You're talking five years, seven years, 10 years, 20 years down the road. You have to have a long term focus in this business. Um, so sometimes I don't worry so much about the short term. Uh, you worry about the long term impact of some of these short-term decisions. And my biggest concern about the long-term impact to our industry is that consumers will switch to cheaper product, meaning the product that's grown in northern China or the product that's grown in Canada, because the price is lower. And with the tariffs, it's much more expensive for American ginseng, and we can't compete um, with the ginseng grown, you know, the ginseng grown here in Wisconsin can't compete with the lower price products in uh, Canada and China. And this existed before the tariffs. So then you add you know, an additional 30% on the tariffs and some people start getting priced out of the market. And people are like, well, does that really impact you? And I'm like, well, if you bought a pound of coffee in the grocery store, and let's say a pound of coffee in the grocery store cost you 12 or 13 bucks, and then you go in next month and a pound of, gro a pound of coffee costs you 18 bucks, at a certain point, you either think about switching the coffee or the coffee brand that you buy or you switch completely. And that's my biggest concern is if this continues for a long period of time, you know, two, three, four, five years where we're under this trade war and trade scrutiny. I mean, we haven't seen tariffs this high since before China entered the WTO. And that's 20 years ago, uh, over 20 years ago. So... I don't know. I mean, at a certain point, consumers are going to switch. You know, not all of them, but some of them will. And when, what we've noticed is that when consumers switch, a lot, some of them don't come back. They just say, well, it's good enough. Um, or, you know, I could pay more, but hey, I'm saving money and the product tastes okay. So I'll just stick with what I'm buying now because I'm comfortable. And they won't trade up and go back to the brands that they bought. Um, and I think we all do this every day. And the difference here is that I'm not talking about coffee. You know, I say, I use that as an example right. because it's something that I think Americans can relate to every day. Even I drink coffee. Um, ginseng costs at retail between 100 and 150, maybe even $200 a pound. So you're not talking about going from $10 to $15. You're talking about going from $100 to $150. And at a certain point, that pricing makes a difference, um, especially when you're talking about a consumable good. You know, we're not talking about a piece of machinery or an electronic equipment or a car. <clears throat> you're talking about something that you're going to take every day and you're going to need to replenish. And those types of consumable products, I don't care if they're paper products, food products, disposable products, whatever they are in the household that you consume, we all have a limit as to how much we're willing to pay for that. Um, and so that's one of my biggest concerns. The, the second concern, which used to be the primary concern, is that there would be an entire generation of consumers who don't know how to use this product. 
And the reason I say that is that technology and convenience and culture has changed so much in the last 20, 30 years that I have a lot of friends of mine and people that I know and customers that are younger than I am. They don't know how to cook with this product. The taste of the product is not necessarily one that it's you know nor- that you would normally taste in the American palate. It's bitter. It's earthy, uh, and people are like, "Well, you know, why is that?" I mean, think about your first taste of coffee when you were young. Think oh, about yeah. your first sip of beer, whether it was you know given to you by a, uh, an adult to see what you would think and laugh at you, or if you just snuck a sip because you wondered what all the buzz was about alcohol. Um, and most people don't like that taste. It's herbal, it's earthy, it's bitter, it's hops, you know, it's coffee. These are acquired tastes. You have to drink them or consume them regularly, if not daily, to acquire that taste. Um, and ginseng is just like that. And so those consumers, when they start taking it, they won't give it up. They may change or switch brands. But now the problem is, uh, presentation and consumption patterns have changed, right? So people don't make coffee at home anymore. They go out and buy it. Uh, It's convenient, it's ready to consume. They buy it cold, they buy it hot, but they buy it. They don't buy coffee beans. Um, Same thing with, you know, cooking. Ginseng is a product that you cook with. Um, We don't cook at home anymore or much anymore. We buy everything either pre-prepared or pre-prepared. Uh, and ready to consume um, whenever you want it. Ginseng normally needs to rehydrate. The dried ginseng product that my parents consume typically would need to be rehydrated overnight. Who has time for that? Nobody. Uh, and so that used to be my biggest concern is that I'd have a whole bunch of 20, 30, 40 year olds, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, who don't know how to use this product. They've never had to rehydrate ginseng. They never cooked with ginseng before. They know ginseng and they know it's good for them. Just like you and I know about coffee and beer and all these other things when we're kids, but we've never tried them. So how do you get them to try them once they're an adult and acquire a taste for them? That requires a lot of education. It requires a lot of trial, a lot of sampling. And then even if they become become consumers, their, their consumer tastes and preferences change over time. Um, and they may not know that Wisconsin ginseng is the best ginseng. No different than most of us who grew up drinking beer, grew up on really cheap light beer. Um, you know, most of us that grew up on coffee grew up on really cheap kind of pre-ground coffee. Um, you don't figure it out until much later in life sometimes, unless you're lucky uh, or you know you got a lot of money. And so that's what I'm trying to help figure out right now is how do I get a generation of consumers who aren't used to cooking and preparing and making this product, and nor do they have the time uh, to invest in it. They may have the money, but they don't have the time. And so how do you get these folks using this product every day? And, and do you feel like you're gonna have a plan? We have a plan. Uh, we have a plan, just like other things. It's, it requires a lot of education, a lot of sampling, uh, and we've done it before. Uh, our business, our industry has done it, has done it before. You know, my parents and our family introduced uh, basically the equivalent of tea bags to this industry back in the uh, late '80s, early '90s. Because as when you're processing this product. You get a lot of trimmings and fiber and other stuff, and you have to do something with it. And so we started, you know, putting them basically in tea bags, shipping them to tea bag companies. And instead of putting dried tea in there, you're putting dried ginseng pieces in there. 
and we had to give away probably thousands, if not millions of tea bags. We still give away thousands of tea bags a year just to get people to try the product because they don't believe it t- can taste as good as the product that you would steep in water and heat at a slow simmer or a boil for you know hours on end. Uh, and then you could steep a tea bag in there and five minutes later, ten minutes later, still have you know really flavorful ginseng tea. Um, and so we've done that before. Jingxing slices. Um, you know, some of the first uh, slicing machines that came out of Taiwan were developed by my uncles. And um, you know, so Jingxing slices have been around. And when we used to, we used to have to give away the Jingxing slices to customers to get them to try it because they believed that we were slicing up the bad roots or the ugly roots or the disfigured roots, the ones that you couldn't put in a nice, pretty retail package. And while there was some truth to it. The product is also really convenient because it rehydrates faster, it cooks faster, it steeps faster because there's more surface area. And consumers didn't get it at first. But when we started giving it away and they tried it and they started using it, they found new ways to use it and found it very convenient. And now they started buying it. One of our top selling pr- products that I can't keep in stock right now is ginseng slices. Um, but there were probably, you know, when I was working in this business in the 90s, I'd get calls from consumers all the time complaining to stop sending free ginseng slices in their packages because they didn't know what to do with them or what how to use them or didn't want them. <laughs> okay. okay, so you know we know from trial and error that this product requires a lot of sampling. You know, the, another good example is a product that I one of my first products I developed five years ago called GinMax, and this is. Uh, an extract powder that we that what happens is we have a company that we work with um, that extracts the ginseng or what we call the ginsenicides out of the ginseng in a liquid extract and then spray dries it so that it becomes a, a flowing powder and it's a scientific method and a lot of Chinese people are like if you process it like that you don't get any medical benefits you're supposed to take the whole root and when you extract it and then powder it you're just kind of you know westernizing it and what we found is that it's still effective, the product still works, there's science behind it. The difference is it's convenient. With that extract powder, you can get away with taking one pill a day. And if there's anything that I know about American society is that convenience and one pill a day work. Uh, and so we, but I've had to give away you know, thousands of six-pack trial caplets to people to get them to try the product. And p- consumers take them, my friends take them. When someone's asking me what should I try, if you don't know how to cook or use ginseng, I literally give them these trial packets and say, take these for a week or two weeks. See how you feel. If you feel better, if you're sleeping better at night, you're waking up feeling refreshed, you know, you feel like you have more energy or more stamina, and you're a swimmer, I mean, this is right. a product that you should think about taking. Because these are all, a lot of athletes who take ginseng, they're endurance athletes. They run triathlons, they're marathon runners, because the product does help build stamina. And so um, they take it, and after a week or two, they say, I noticed that when I stop taking it, I don't feel the same. And that's why Chinese people take ginseng. It helps restore balance. You know, Americans, we're on this crazy roller coaster. We wake up, we're tired, we drink coffee. We start crashing at noon. We consume sugar or caffeine or a five-hour energy or a monster energy drink to get us through the afternoon. Then we're so wired and stressed by five o'clock when we get home from dinner, what do we do? We flip it back around and we take depressants. We consume beer, alcohol, cocktail, three, four of them. And then we can't fall asleep and then we take an Ambien, right? And then you wake up the next morning and you feel like... You just got dragged through the mud, and you wonder why. 
And Chinese people do the exact opposite. They don't drink coffee in the morning. They drink tea, ginseng tea, green tea, you know, black tea, red tea. They drink tea all day long. They don't consume a ton of alcohol at night. And they wake up the next morning and they do it all over again. And so it's just a difference in both food culture and kind of just general culture that we do what we do. Uh, and I've done it before too. I grew up in America. You right. know, I, used to, I used to drink soda. I used to drink caffeine. You know, I used to drink a lot of sugar. I thought it was great. Um, I still drink alcohol, but that doesn't mean that you're not doing damage at some level. And so what jinxing helps do is balance your body and kind of restore you back to kind of what I would say mother nature intended. Um, and so I get a lot of consumers who ask me, what do I take? And I give them Gin Max. And most people will say that they notice the effects of ginseng when they stop taking it. Okay. And, and what it is is that they feel more tired. They feel more run down. They feel like their immune system or whatever is more compromised because they're succumbing to the stress of life. And when you take ginseng, you're not really immune to those things, but it helps kind of build up some defense against some of those things. And I would also say Chinese people wouldn't be spending hundreds of dollars on products that don't work. Right. You don't have millions of Chinese people that are that gullible and that stupid to spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars on products that don't work. For literally uh, generations. And year after year after year. Right. Yeah, it's for generations. It's a thousand yep. years. It it would be tough to to trick a single generation, much less ten generations. Correct. Wow. All right. So hey, this has been great. If people want to get more information, well, just sort of to get their either learn more about you or just kind of get a sense of the products. Where can we send them? Um, we have a website. You know, we've been online for a number of years now. It's uh, Su Jingsing. That's H S U. Jinseng, G-I-N-S-E-N-G.com. Cool. So com. We have a lot of information on there, both English and Chinese, about our company. And if you're in the Wassa area or even if you're traveling and want to come and are in the Wassa uh, region, you're free to come and take a tour. You know, we pr appreciate a call ahead of time to know to expect you. We're typically open Monday through Friday. Uh, 8.30 to 5 to give tours and stuff. But, you know, I come in on weekends and by appointment in order to show people around. So if you want to do some farm tourism or some ag tourism, you're welcome to stop by our shop and we can show you around. We have a gift shop here if you want to buy the product. Otherwise, if you're listening, you know, outside of the area, we carry a lot of our products uh, on, uh, online on Amazon as well. So a lot of our Jinxing products, we self-distribute on uh, Amazon, fulfilled by Amazon. You know, if you're a Prime member, you'll get it in two days or less. Um, so, uh, if you want to try some of our products, we got them on, uh, online as well, but you know, we'd love to have you around and show you around and maybe I'll see some folks on a tour. Cool. All right. So, Hey, thanks for doing this. No problem. No problem. Thanks for giving me a call. Appreciate it. Rumors in that Texas town. About to check outside the game. You know what I'm talking about. Just let me know if you wanna go to that whole mile on the range. They got a lot of nice girls. Huh? <laughs> <laughs>